Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the Midtown Schuyler Bookstore. My name is Alex Brubaker. It's a pleasure to welcome you to the bookstore this evening. Um, before we get started, uh, I have some announcements. As always, um, if, if you have not yet heard, we are hosting the Harrisburg Book Festival. We're about a month away, October 3rd to the 6th. We have these brochures that we just printed out this week. So please, we have some available at the cafe counter, um, up on some, on some tables. So please take a flyer uh, as you leave tonight. Again, that's October 3rd to the 6th. We have a great lineup uh, uh, coming into town, and we're also, the latest update on, we're having a tent sale across the street. The latest update is 20,000 books at uh, one, two, and three dollars, so all discounted books. So if 200,000 in here is enough for you, we're gonna have 20 more thousand out there. So again, October 3rd to the 6th, uh, huge uh, tent sale, and a lot of authors coming into town, so mark your calendars. Uh, moving on, I have the pleasure of introducing our speaker here this evening. Uh, Dr. Michelle Gelfand is a distinguished university professor of psychology at the University of Maryland. Her pioneering research into cultural norms has been cited thousands of times in the press, including in the New York Times, the Washington Post, Harvard Business Review, uh, Science, and on NPR and elsewhere. Uh, the recipient of numerous awards, she is a past president of the International Association for Conflict Management. We're here tonight to celebrate the paperback release of Dr. Gelfand's new book, Rule Makers, Rule Breakers, Tight and Loose Cultures, and the Secret Signals that Direct Our Lives. In the book, Gelfand takes us on a journey through human cultures, offering us a new view of the world and ourselves. The book has received praise and blurbs from many, many media outlets and prominent authors. Uh, author Daniel Pink says that it's a brilliant and timely book. Gelfan has exposed a universal fault line running beneath nations, states, organizations, and even families. And uh, the iconic Steven Pinker writes that Gelfan's book is a groundbreaking analysis. Anyone interested in our cultural divide will find tremendous insight in rule makers, rule breakers. Uh, so without further ado, please join me in welcoming Michelle Gelfan to the stage. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming on Labor Day weekend. We enjoyed Harrisburg today and your great Hershey Park. And I'm just delighted to be here uh, to talk to you about um, this book. So I want to start with a story about two fish. And so these fish are swimming along one day and they pass another fish and the fish says to them, hey boys, how's the water? And they swim on and one fish looks at the other and says, what the hell is water? And this story is actually Pretty simple story, but has a profound point, which is that sometimes the most important realities around us are the most difficult for us to see. And for fish, that's water. But for humans, that's culture. And culture is this omnipresent and invisible force around us. And it's something that we take for granted from morning till night. It's also something that's distinctly human. There's no other species that's developed it to the extent that we have. And it's also something that affects everything from our parents, our politics, to our parenting. And what's really amazing from my point of view as a cross-cultural psychologist is that as humans, we've had these incredible technological feats. We've put a man on the moon, we've wired the earth, we've discovered the laws of gravity. But what if we can discover the laws of culture? then we might be in a better place to build a planet that um, is great for all of us. And I'm gonna talk to you about my journey studying culture, but I do wanna say that I wasn't always interested in culture. I'm from New York. I don't know if anyone can notice the accent. But for many years, I had this view of the world as popularized the New Yorker. There's New York City. We do acknowledge New Jersey. I wanna point that out. But then there's basically a couple of rocks in the rest of the world. And that's really how I saw the world for many, many years. Uh, when I was a junior at Colgate University, um, that view of the world was shattered. And I actually went off to a semester abroad program in the UK, in London. And I remember being, uh, experiencing this tremendous amount of culture shock. And I called my father, who's from Brooklyn, and I was confiding him all my strange uh, things I saw in London, among other things, why people were going from London to Paris or London to Amsterdam just for the weekend. And my dad said something really important that changed the way I thought about my career. And he said, well, just think about it like it's going from New York to Pennsylvania. And I thought that was such an awesome metaphor that literally the next day, I booked a trip to Egypt. I had a lot of time on my hands on the semester abroad. We had very little class uh, room time. So I basically told my dad, dad, don't worry about it. It's like me going from New York to California. 
and he didn't really appreciate that, but he nevertheless um, gave me his blessing. And it was in Egypt and in travels around the world after that that I recognized that there's, I, I don't know anything about this incredibly important force that's around us, that is culture. So I ditched my plans to become um, a doctor, a physician, and I went to the glorious twin cities of Champaign-Urbana, Illinois, uh, to work with Harry Triandis, who was the founder of the field of cross-cultural psychology, because I wanted to use the best tools of science to understand culture. And that's what this book is about. So as I've been doing work on psychology and culture, I've been noticing a lot of different puzzles around the world. For example, why is it that if you go to Singapore, how many people have been to Singapore? It's called the fine country because there's many different punishments for lots of different things, like chewing gum or not flushing the toilet in public or even walking naked in front of your curtains can get you a penalty. I know many of you like to do that, so I'm just warning you if you go to Singapore. Uh, if you take a quick trip over to New Zealand, you see very different types of behaviors. You see people walking barefoot in banks. You see couch burnings in uh, various different university settings like this. And New Zealand is the only place that I know of that has its own national wizard. So this dude here is the national wizard, uh, recently retired, uh, in New Zealand, and he was a retired, actually he was a fired professor from the UK vis-a-vis -vis Australia, and he landed in the streets of New Zealand, and he was lecturing on everything from rugby to religion in city streets. And instead of, kind of sort of punishing the deviant, the prime minister of New Zealand asked him to become the wizard. And there's a drive, this is not fake news, I've looked into this, and it turns out that he was charged with entertaining the country. And that he did. He would hatch himself from gigantic eggs off of libraries and many other shenanigans. If you go in other places of the world, you see other contrasts. Why in Germany, for example, do people tend to wait patiently on street corners even if there's no cars around? But if you go to my own beloved New York City, you see people jaywalking constantly, even with kids in tow. Uh, this is actually an interesting device here on the left that maybe uh, is not so obvious, but it's actually a new incentive that people are inventing in certain German cities. It's called street pong. And this guy is playing ping pong with the person across the street from him, and it actually is telling you when the light's going to change. So it kind of keeps you entertained while you wait uh, on city streets. But in all seriousness, why is it that in some countries you can openly smoke marijuana, whereas in others you can get the death penalty for the same behavior? Closer to home, other trends that seem puzzling are, for example, why is it that we're naming our kids with more and more unique baby names over the years? This is actual data. Uh, in New York City, a colleague of mine actually was in a store and asked where the candy was, and they said she doesn't work here anymore. That's just a, one example of this. But also, why are we getting fatter and fatter in this country and around the world? Is there anything that ties these examples together? And that's what Rule Makers, Rule Breakers is about. It's about something that's omnipresent and around us, but invisible, but affecting us 24-7. And that has to do with social norms. Social norms are these unwritten, sometimes formalized rules that guide our behavior. And we follow them constantly. In fact, we, we rarely stop and think about how much we need social norms to predict each other's behavior, to coordinate on an unprecedented basis. So I want you to try to imagine a world as a thought experiment where people are not following social norms. I try to do this when I'm out and about, you know, start violating norms. Imagine a world where people are driving on either side of the street and not paying attention to stop signs. Or you go into your favorite restaurant here in Harrisburg and people are openly chewing with their mouths open, they're belching loudly, and they're stealing food from each other's plates. Actually, that sounds like my family dinner in New York. Or imagine you walk into an elevator and people are facing backwards. Try that sometime just to get some reaction. Or imagine in this world, sex is not reserved for private settings. People have sex on buses, on public benches, and in bookstores, just like this. Luckily, humans develop social norms to avoid these kinds of scenarios. Social norms are the glue that keep us together. But what I've focused on in my work over the last 20 years is that this glue tends to be stronger in some contexts than others. And this is the distinction that I've called tight versus loose groups. Tight groups have very strict norms and punishments, whereas loose groups are much, have weaker norms and they're much more permissive. They afford a much wider range of behavior. And I started looking at this distinction across nations as a first step in thinking about, can we measure this construct? Can we see what its consequences are for human groups? And also, why does it evolve in the first place? These are some of the questions that I asked in a paper that came out in science a couple of years ago, 
where we put together a large team of scientists around the world to study this distinction. And this was across many continents and languages and et cetera. And what we found was that we could reliably measure how strict or permissive, how tight or loose groups were around the world. Even though all cultures have tight and loose elements, we can differentiate, for example, Japan, Singapore, Germany, and Austria, which tends to veer tight, and Brazil, New Zealand, um, the Netherlands, this tends to veer looser. And what we were looking at in this, this set of studies and other work that came out after this is what are the consequences of this? What are the sort of signatures that you can see about tight and loose cultures? And I'm just gonna give you a couple of them because I want you to read the book. My publisher always gets verklempt when I give book talks because he knows that I give too much away about the book and then you're not gonna re wanna read the book. So in any event, I'm giving you a couple of different snippets from the book. But one we found was that tight cultures, for example, have a lot of order. So they have much more monitoring in terms of police per capita, in terms of videotapes per capita, and they have much less crime. Um, many of you might listen to the show, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, on NPR on Sundays. And Peter Sagal had this great show where he was asking, what do Japanese police officers need more of? And we're all guessing they need more time off, they need higher pay. Turns out that Japanese police officers need more crime because there's so little crime in Japan that apparently some Japanese police officers have been trying to egg people on to commit minor crimes because they're so bored. Um, also what we found is that tight cultures tend to have more uniformity in terms of what people wear, in terms of what they drive. Even in the city clocks on streets, I found that in tight cultures, if you look at the clocks on city streets, they pretty much say the same time. But if you're in a loose culture, you're not entirely sure what time it is because the clocks really are not synchronized. And we have data that I report on in the book on this. Also, financial markets, recent work published in the Journal of Financial Economics showed that actually there's more stock price synchrony in tight cultures also, more buying and selling of stocks. So again, more synchrony, more uniformity. There's also much more self-control in tight cultures. When you live in a context where there's a lot of potential punishments, you learn to regulate your behavior from a very young age. So that means that, for example, Tight cultures have less alcoholism, less drug abuse, they have less debt, and they're even less fat, controlling for a lot of things. Apparently, in loose cultures, like the US in general, even animals, our pets, tend to be overweight. My beloved Portuguese water dog is a good example of that, probably 20 pounds overweight. Even cats are also overweight. The point here is that loose cultures struggle with order. They have more crime, they have less uniformity, and they have self-regulation failures. But loose cultures corner the market on openness. In our research, we see across the board that loose cultures are much more tolerant of different types of people, people from different races, religions, creeds. Even in one experiment I talk about in the book, I had research assistants of mine go back to their countries wearing fake facial warts. So I bought them for them on the internet. Yeah, you can find them on the internet. I know, we do, psychologists do kind of weird things, but in any event, we also um, had people wearing fake tattoos and nose rings and or they were just wearing their regular face and we standardized them in Bremen in Germany to go back to their countries and ask for directions on city streets or to ask for help in city stores and we were timing how long it took and we were looking at the quality of help that these people wearing these strange things got in different cultures. And we found they were much more likely to be given help in looser contexts than tighter contexts. Also, loose cultures have much more creativity and they're much more open to change. So you can see here that tight cultures struggle with openness, even though they corner the market on, on, on order. So you might be wondering, why does this evolve in the first place, this dimension? Because there's no common geography or tradition or religion or language that unites tight cultures and loose cultures. But what I found in this research, and you'll see this across different levels of analysis, is that there is one important reason why groups sometimes vary on this construct, and that has to do with threat. So threat can be from either mother nature, think chronic natural disasters, famines like Japan has had for the last several centuries. Um, threat can also be human-made, think constant invasions from your neighbors, or think pathogens, or, or even high population density. And this, the logic is really simple. If you have a lot of collective threat that you're facing as a group, you need strong rules to coordinate to survive. And if you have less threat, you have less of a need for these kinds of rules to coordinate. And we've seen this with data that we published in this paper across hundreds of years, that for example, tight cultures have more food deprivation, they have more territorial threat over the last hundred years, they have higher population density, even it's dating back to 1500, more disasters, more pathogens. 
We also see this with other methods. We do a lot of work with computer scientists where we look at artificial societies and we try to look at how threat affects the evolution of, of tightness. And I talk a little bit about that in the book. So this is a really important principle. It's not the only reason why tight and loose cultures um, evolve. Other factors are important, like how much mobility there is in a culture, how much diversity there is. When you have more diversity, it's harder to agree upon rules. So there's other examples in the book that also um, counter this, this kind of trend. And for interesting examples that we can think about why some tight cultures don't have threat and why some loose cultures do. But the important point is once we've grasped this language, tight and loose, we can then use this to kind of diagnose other levels of analysis of where we see this. And one thing that we did was look at this in the US 50 states. So rather than think about red versus blue, we can draw a new map of the US 50 states. And this came out in the proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences a couple years ago with my student, Jesse Harrington. And you can see here that darker shades reflect greater tightness. The south, some areas of the Midwest tend to veer tight. The coast tend to veer loose. Pennsylvania is kind of in the moderately tight uh, shade, as you can see. But what we found, what's really super interesting, I have a whole chapter on the 50 states in the book, is that there's a huge correspondence between how much threat states face and the level of tightness. For example, you can look at this map that came out in the New York Times last summer, and it has a striking resemblance in terms of natural disasters and where we find tightness in the US. There's other factors I talk about, including the founders of different parts of this country and where they came from, what kind of cultural norms they brought with them. But what's really important also is that same order and openness trade-off is found at the 50 states level also. So what you can see is that, for example, tight states have people who psychologists call more conscientious. This is part of a big five personality dimensions. They also have more order, more law enforcement, um, less mobility, less divorce, and they have more self-control, same pattern that we see at national level in general. Tight states are also more polite. Um, and actually, the number one state in terms of rudeness is my beloved New York. And this might explain why if you're a New Yorker and you go in the South and you start flipping people off, because we like to do that in New York, you get in a lot of trouble. And actually, my husband, who's right here, did that once on the highway. He could tell you the story later. It did not, well, it ended well, but it was very um, nerve-wracking. Um, but Stulu states, again, they corner the market on openness. They have people who have a higher openness. They have more creativity in terms of art, artists per capita, patents per capita, and more tolerance. They also, while they're more rude, they tend to be more fun, according to our data analysis. Again, you can zoom into any state and also find some tight and loose pockets. One of the things that we did in our research is look at social class as in another example where this distinction of tight and loose can help us understand each other a little bit better. So I wanna ask you to do, again do another thought experiment and think about what comes to mind when I say follow the rules. You don't have to tell me, but just think, something's conjuring up in your mind right now. What words come to mind? And this is the kind of phrase that we used with people from the working class and from the upper class in our studies hundreds of people, and we can then analyze the valence of the words that people come up with when they're thinking about this phrase. How positive or negative do people think about rules? American society tends to have a lot of books, I would imagine in this bookstore, that are about breaking the rules, and rules are not good. Even I've seen some children's books that are about anarchy and promoting anarchy in your house. <laughs> uh, but what we found was by the working class is that rules were seen positively structure, good, they were seen as being something that's really important. Among the upper class though, people have more negative connotations when they come up with rules, things like goody two-shoes and negative. And it makes a lot of sense because if you are um, in the working class, then often you're facing a lot more threats, whether it's being worried about falling into poverty, what sociologists call hard living. Rules also are really important when, you, when you're in occupations where there's a lot of potential danger, and they're also important in neighborhoods where you wanna keep your kids out of trouble. For the upper class, which has more of a safety net, we can afford to break more of the rules. And in fact, some studies uh, by colleagues of mine at U, U California Berkeley show this in a really interesting experiment. They had their research assistants hiding in bushes on street corners and measuring who's actually violating traffic rules, which kind of cars. Yeah, this is again a kind of weird stuff that we do. And they found very interesting trends that in fact it was the upper class cars like BMWs that tend to actually violate traffic rules and also cut off pedestrians much more, which is illegal in California. Uh, whereas it was the, the plumber vans that were much more likely to abide by the rules. 
We found the same order and openness trade-off. I have a whole chapter about this in the book where we could see that when you can break the rules a lot, you actually become more tolerant and more creative. We also wanted to see how early did these differences arise. So we started to bring in three-year-olds into our laboratory. So this is an, an example of one of our youngest subjects. Um, and you, know, you can't exactly ask three-year-olds what do they think, think of rules. But what we did was we used a great paradigm by Michael Tomasello, developmental psychologist, where we have the kid playing with a puppet. This is Max the puppet. They're playing these games they've never played before. They learn new rules. They befriend Max the puppet. But then all of a sudden, Max the puppet becomes Max the norm violator. Starts breaking all the rules of the game and is explaining that he's playing the rules correctly. And what we can do is videotape these kids to see how do they react. By age three, we can see that people from the middle class, other than the working class, are much more disturbed by Max the puppet doing these weird things and they tell him to stop. It's the upper class kids who laugh and give Max more of a break. When we study parental attitudes about rules, we see a very strong difference between parents in terms of how they view rules. I want to mention, I've been talking a lot about how we measure chronic types of threats. But actually, in another bunch of chapters, I talk about how this principle can help us understand puzzling trends that we see around the world. Because actually, what we find is that threats don't have to be real to tighten individuals. I can bring people into my laboratory, and I can, uh, in Maryland, I can prime them with different types of threats, whether it's population density or terrorism or natural disasters. And what I see is remarkable within a couple of minutes you could see people tightening. They want greater rules, they want stronger punishments, they start to desire leaders who could help to coordinate more, which are more independent and autocratic. So this is something that is something that could become readily accessible for any of us, um, whether it's because of our national culture, our state culture, social class, whatnot. Uh, it's a universal principle that threat, um, because it's important to have rules in these contexts, uh, people will tighten regardless of um, whether it's chronic or temporary, whether it's real or imagined. Uh, actually, in our research in various different countries, we could see that people who felt really threatened uh, felt like the U.S. was too loose, and that was predicting some of their desire for Donald Trump or, in France, Le Pen. It helps us to explain some election dynamics and some other national politics that are going on around the world, and I talk about that in a chapter called Culture's Revenge. Okay, I want to ask you though, I'm kind of getting toward the end of my talk, but I want to ask you which is better. Okay, so I'm going to, by a show of hands, I want to see who's going to vote for tightness. I always get a bunch of people. Who's going to vote for looseness? Who's going to abstain? Okay. <laughs> so, I mean, this is a really interesting question, and I have a whole chapter on this question. Um, and it's been a question that's been occupying humans for centuries, whether we're economists, philosophers, psychologists, and so forth. And so you had people really arguing which is better, freedom or constraint. So you start with people like Plato or Confucius or Hobbes, and that dude had a very negative view of humans. He thought we need a lot of rules, right, or we're going to kill each other. Then you have people like John Stuart Mill and Freud who felt like rules are a problem. Freud thought that they make us neurotic. We know he was kind of neurotic, but in any event. The question is, what's the correct answer? And in my work, I argued, well, what if it's neither? What if, even though groups have to evolve to be tight or loose, it's the groups that get too tight or too loose that have a lot of dysfunction? So think about that. Think about the groups that get entirely loose. They have less and actually almost no predictability. Uh, and chaos. This is what happened, by the way, after Arab Spring, after Mubarak was thrown out, that system went to total normlessness, extreme looseness. And guess what happens in that context? People desire even more autocratic leaders. But this is what we call autocratic recidivism. And I talk about this in the book. At the, at the opposite extreme, you can think about contexts that are entirely tight and they're very repressive. Durkheim called these two extremes, well, he talked about suicide being prominent in both of these extremes. He didn't talk about it as tight loose, but he was getting at the same idea, that if you're in a total normless context, you want to escape. Um, he called it animic suicide. If you're in a totally repressive context, you also want to escape. He called it fatalistic suicide. But I don't think he had that much data. I'm a psychologist. I want to get data. So this is what we call the Goldilocks principle of tight loose. Again, that Groups might need to veer tight or loose for good reasons, but the extremes are really problematic. And so what you could see is some of the data from this that came out a few years ago. 
You can see in an extremely tight and extremely loose context, there's higher depression, there's higher suicide, there's higher blood pressure, and there's lower happiness. This principle, by the way, doesn't just apply to nations. It applies to organizations as well. It even applies to our households. We know that parents that are too helicopter-like and too much monitoring their kids and parents who are too laissez-faire produce maladaptive kids. So it's that Goldilocks principle of norms and rules in the household that produces happy children. As I mentioned, in organizations, it's another principle. I have a paper that just came out on this context of what happens when organizations arguably get too tight. So for example, United is a good candidate for this, United Airlines. Now, I want to mention, I wrote an op-ed on this, and I think United should have strong rules. It's an airline. They need to coordinate. We don't want them making all sorts of weird decisions all the time. But arguably, people at United were getting too tight, and they were just blindly following the rules, which is what some of my interviews showed. They needed to insert some discretion into that system. It's something I call flexible tightness. At the flip side, think about places like Uber or Tesla. Now, these places should veer loose. They're in context where creativity and innovation matters. But we can say, arguably, they became too normless with all sorts of other problems. I wrote an op-ed on Tesla recently arguing they need to insert some structure into that system, what I call structured looseness. This is all to say, now I've given way too much away about this book. Don't tell Rick Horrigan at Scribner about this. But this is just to say we invented social norms as humans, and we can use them to harness the power of them to help create better environments that we live in. And I talk about this in the final chapter in the book, that one of our important jobs nowadays is to identify, mindfully identify, contexts where we need to tighten loose norms. I would also nominate the internet as one example of this. Again, not being too extreme, getting too constrained, but this is a context where there's a lot of normless behavior. And actually, in our research recently, we've shown that it's not the amount of time you spend online, it's how much normlessness you experience online that's leading to depression and other negative outcomes. But also, we need to identify contexts where we need to loosen tight norms. And these are contexts where um, we might have not realized that they're getting too tight. This is what I call tight, loose ambidexterity. And I have a whole chapter on also how you can apply this construct of tight, loose ambidexterity to organizations, to our own teams. How do we insert some structure when we need to tighten loose organizations? What are the processes by which we can do that? How do we loosen tight organizations? A lot of organizations are facing this problem, a lot of manufacturing organizations that I've uh, interviewed, uh, where they want to insert some more flexibility, but sometimes they go overboard and it backfires, and I talk about some of those stories. And some examples where it was done really successfully, including at Microsoft. Okay, this is my last slide, I promise you. But I do want to say that this concept also applies to our own daily lives, or, uh, us as individuals. Of course, uh, we all come from very different cultural backgrounds and different contexts, but we can also see that we can think about where we fall on this, this continuum. I, I talk about this great metaphor from Dalia Litwick, are you an order Muppet or are you a chaos Muppet? So you remember, you know, kind of the order Muppets are like Kermit the Frog um, and Bert. You know, they like to collect paper clips and like a lot of order. On the flip side, you have the chaos Muppets, like Animal and Cookie Monster. He was using Cookie Monster's voice to drive on the GPS the other day. I couldn't believe it. Um, uh, and they, they're, they're really pretty chaotic. Um, and actually, what we could see is on my website, you can find a tight, loose mindset quiz that helps us to understand where we fall on this default continuum. So people who are veering toward the chaos Muppets, they tend to not really pay attention to rules a whole lot. Um, they tend to like risk, and they're quasi-impulsive. But they also um, are OK with ambiguity. On the flip side, more of the order Muppets among us, um, we can see that they notice rules. They have a lot of impulse control, and they crave structure and order. It's important to think about where we fall on this continuum, because it can help us to have a more understanding of what kind of contexts irritate us, what kind of people irritate us. Also, it can help us cultivate empathy for others' mindsets. A lot of the conflicts that we have on a daily basis, whether it's our spouses, our kids, our colleagues, our neighbors, our in-laws, I love my in-laws, but we vary on tight loose, pretty much. Uh, you got the New York Jewish family and the Chicago uh, Protestant family, that's bound to be a big, tight, loose plethora of interesting, interesting episodes. 
But it's important because once we understand where people come from uh, in terms of their mindsets, it helps us to have more empathy and to understand where we are um, and rather than just being perplexed by other people's behavior. And my final point is that it can also help us to negotiate. I study negotiation and many of us who do work and train people in this area often say we have to prioritize um, what's your most important priority when it comes to tight and loose. If it's in the household, if you're veering tight, what is the domain that you feel you must have a lot of rules in? And what can you give up a little slack on? On the flip side, if you're super loose, what domains do you feel like you have to really keep that, uh, those uh, permissive rules to be alive? And what can you sacrifice in other contexts? I do want to say, and I talk about this in a, in a podcast with Dan Pink, uh, that we do negotiate tight loose in the household, even with our kids. Um, and I think for many, many of us who are, have teenagers, it's a time of life when you want to lock them in the house, right? There's a lot of threat. You can threaten that you'll move to Singapore if they misbehave. But probably what's better to do is to negotiate and talk about what, rule, what domains really need to be tight and what, where can we give a little more slack and kind of come to an agreement about it. So I just want to end there and say I'm really thankful that you all came out tonight. And I'm here to answer questions. Um, and I'll be around for a little while. So um, thank you for your attention. We're going to open up to a Q&A. I already see a couple hands in the air. You guys know the drill. So we'll go here, and then we'll go over there. Uh, thank you. You mentioned the word culture. And one of the very important component of the culture is the language. That's right. How you can explain the uh, current situation that I used to work in University of Washington, and uh -huh. my colleague at the age mid-60s told me he never been in New York because he doesn't feel comfortable. I asked him, where have you been overseas? He said, I will never go anywhere but London because I don't feel comfortable to go to Berlin, Paris, uh, and Madrid. Yeah. How you explain in your research in terms of language? Yeah, well, I think it's a really interesting point that um, you know, there's a lot of fear of going abroad because it puts us out of our comfort zone. It's like a fish out of water, right? And actually, what we know, though, is that people who do wind up going abroad and trying to venture off and deal with that discomfort, uh, they tend, it changes the way they view the world. Uh, we also know, though, that not everyone fits well in all cultures, right? That, in fact, it's really strange that in many organizations, we send people abroad because they're technically competent, not because they're culturally intelligent. And in some recent research that I talk about also in the book briefly, we've actually measured the kinds of individual differences, the kind of personalities that fit better in tight cultures or vice versa. And it suggests that we should be mindful about those matches and that kind of uh, aversion among some people to go to certain places. And actually expatriation return and um, stress is really high when people are mismatched when they go abroad. So we think this principle helps for people to understand how to better place people in different assignments or help advise people where should they go, where should they retire in the US if they're coming from a loose or a tight state. By the way, just on that point, also we know that companies also, you would think they would understand these kind of differences in language and culture, but they tend to choose partners strategically, but they don't choose them based on the kind of underlying cultural DNA. And we can see there's a lot of problems in our research when tight and loose organizations merge uh, and only to find out later that they really don't like each other. <laughs> so we talk a lot about how do you anticipate these differences and help to negotiate them, even in that context, individually and in organizations. Question in the front. Hi, my name is Chelsea. I first want to provide a suggestion for the man who provided, <laughs> who asked the question, sir. Um, so there is, I don't know if you listen to podcasts online, but there is a podcast called Hidden Brain. It's by NPR, and there's a specific episode called Watch Your Mouth, <laughs> and it's about um, language and how language informs our ability to see the world differently. So and they, they kind of, they, they use it for a few different scenarios, but they talk about how, say for example, in German, a bridge is masculine, but in French, a, a bridge is feminine. So the literal, a linguist talked about how the literal, like, I guess, gendered pieces of different languages inform our ability to see things differently. So bridges may be more masculine looking in Germany and you know more feminine looking in France. And you know, they talk about Aboriginal culture and how some cultures don't have numbers and how that informs their so yeah, it's I, this just a suggestion for that going forward. But 
Anyway, my name is Chelsea. Um, I found it really interesting just sitting here watching the presentation and having 1984 right behind the screen <laughs> right here from George Orwell. Um, and so I thank you so much for this presentation. I, I just came home for the weekend. I live in Massachusetts. I, I work at um, Harvard's Graduate School of Education. And so I'm doing some research there. And so most of my work is in, in diversity and inclusion. Um, also, I just want to say, I will argue that I think, as someone who used to live in New York and now lives in Massachusetts, I will argue that people in Massachusetts are much meaner than people in New York, <laughs> especially in Boston. New Yorkers have a bad rap, you know? <laughs> in, in, in Boston, it's different, okay? Um, but I wanted to ask you, most of my work, I do work with tenured faculty, and so I do, do diversity and inclusion yeah. work. You know, it's a very rigid culture within the academy. And so, you know, I actually was having a conversation with my baby boomer parents earlier. <laughs> um, as a millennial, we talk a lot about um, um, just language, diversity, gender, and things of that nature, and how younger um, generations, like Generation Z, use um, non-binary gender mm -hmm. um, identities more than any generation prior That's to right. educating faculty, educating older people about using they, them, their, instead of he, him, her, or he, him, his, and she, her, hers, it's really, it's really, really very challenging yeah. to help kind of convince and, and understand, right? Um, so I'm wondering if you're looking at generational differences at all mm -hmm. when it comes to culture and how we may be shifting more towards, I guess, open culture because of, mm -hmm. I guess, you know, more an open mindset among younger generations. Yeah, this is a great question. Uh, because what you're describing is just more latitude with how with which we see the world, right? That's this is a looseness, and we have more latitude in terms of distinctions we make with respect to gender. That means that we are trying to be more permissive around those norms. We do find some interesting evidence around generations. I would say that um, Plato, though, argued for the same thing centuries ago. He would talk about how the kids of this generation are basically loose. <laughs> so every generation seems to have this kind of pattern. Um, I think that understanding the deeper cultural codes and these kinds of norms that differ can help us to communicate a lot better than just judging people for what they think and to try to communicate uh, about them. And, and this is a great area that you're in. We know that, like I mentioned, diversity um, and tolerance for diversity is much higher in looser cultures. They tend to have less threat. Um, and so diversity is a sometimes a struggle among tight cultures. But it, it, I think the issue here is around how do you change norms? And I have some work going on on this that I could talk about with you offline. And what we could see is that norms change very slowly in tighter cultures, but they can change with certain champions, with certain structures. They just take longer to change. And Americans, by the way, are pretty impatient, right? I mean, de Tocqueville noticed this about us, that we're just, we like, we're, we're a young nation, and we like to get things done quickly. And that's part of the problem we think about change, is that we have to kind of slow down and say, you know what, we, maybe we make small changes first. In tighter context, you need to make those small changes before you can get these kind of more nonlinear trends. So patience and thinking about the levers of change in those contexts is really important. But more offline about that. I've got a three-part question for you. I'm wondering, what kind of Muppet are you? <laughs> what you kind, can ask him. What kind of Muppet <laughs> is your husband? And what, and what can the tight, loose polarity tell us about the dynamics within intimate relationships? Okay. okay, first of all, this is a great tripartite question. I'm gonna preface this by saying we just had our 25th wedding anniversary. So with that said, I think you could kind of intuit that I veer moderately loose. I'm an academic, I'm a New Yorker. Todd, I'm gonna, say we haven't gotten the data on him yet, but I would say he was moderately tight. Uh, he's a lawyer. I mean, we don't want lawyers to be all loosey-goosey. You know, if you're in an industry where you have public accountability, and he, by the way, he's always correcting me about my language or my metaphors. If I say, you know, don't bite the bird that feeds you, he gets all verklempt about that. Uh, you know, the dishwasher creates a little bit of conflict because I don't see any rules about loading the dishwasher and sometimes it goes on fire and things like that. But these are minor incidences. But in any event, I do think that, um, you know, it's not something you think about when you get married about this continuum. And I think it's really important to think about. A lot of things are negotiable around this construct, but particularly parenting, I think that's a context where there's usually a lot of conflict. Um, we, we tend to not have a lot of conflict around this except for um, whether or not they're dressed 
appropriately in terms of coats in the winter, because he's from Chicago and he, he doesn't care if they're wearing shorts, and that bothers me. But uh, that, that's to say that I think that we can negotiate it, but we don't usually anticipate this before we get married. And so it's some degree of luck when people can figure it out, because I think it is a major source of marital conflict. So I think I answered most of that, but you'll have to get his, you have to see what he has to say about this uh, after, uh, after the talk. <laughs> Question in the middle, second row. Interesting discussion, thank you. Each of us lives in a bubble, a construct, but we live within a bubble, within a bubble, within a bubble. And I see you, I hope, just as a person, Yeah. but to use your own characterization, you're a New York Jew uh, working in, at the University of Maryland, yeah. and perhaps vacationing or weekending on the Eastern Shore? Pretty accurate. Right. Uh, not so often, but accurate. Right, okay. So I'm thinking about applying the good points that you made that we still have to keep thinking about what bubbles yeah. we're in. And I'd like to go to one specific point, and that is I'm not sure how you define creativity. Uh, and I've scanned part of your book, but I have mm -hmm. not read the entire book. Uh, mm -hmm. I'm guessing that Germany's going to show up as a place where the trains run on time. I would say that's pretty dead on. Right. Uh, some changes recently, but and people uh, are getting very upset. Right. <laughs> at, at the same time, uh, I'm also interested in how this changes over time, not generation to generation. Yeah. But if we go back to World War I Germany, when there was a lot of threat of who's going to be at war with us next. You also had many Jewish scientists, including Einstein, who were among the most creative the human race has ever produced. Uh, how do I sort all this out? What is, what is creativity? Mm -hmm. How did it show up with all these scientists in Germany, and yet Germany was this tight, tight, tight yeah. culture? And um, this is Thank a really you. important question. Um, and actually, it's, it's important just thinking about what is creativity. Um, we can define creativity in, in a couple ways, but what's important is that tight and loose cultures each, each corner the market in a certain part of creativity. So loose cultures are able to come up with really super novel ideas, um, but they, not, they don't tend to be able to implement them very well. That requires a lot of coordination and to scale up. Tight cultures on the flip side, and we have some research on this, they're not as creative in terms of coming up with ideas and new ideas, but they tend to scale up really well. There's a great book um, that's called The Startup Nation that's about Israel. And Israel is a very loose place. I mean, it's gotten, it's gotten some places that are tighter than others. But, and that's a really interesting question because Israel tends to be a pretty threatened context. But the point in this, in this book on The Startup Nation is that Israel is tremendous in terms of its creativity. Part of it, by the way, has to do with Judaism. Uh, for anyone that's Jewish out there, you know there's like three Jews in the room and 10 opinions. <laughs> Jews cannot agree on anything. Uh, and it's true. Actually, during our daughter's bat mitzvah recently, she was reading her speech about her Torah portion, and she starts disagreeing with it. And I said to her, sweetie, like, why are you doing that? Like, why are you disagreeing with the Torah portion? She said, well, the rabbi told me to. So there's a lot of norms for dissent, and then when you have norms for dissent, it's hard to agree on anything, but that spills over to creativity. But in the Startup Nation, the authors talk about how Israel has a scaling up problem. It doesn't tend to produce huge companies that are able to scale up. On the flip side, think about Singapore. Singapore can scale up pretty well, and they contrast these two contexts. So there's a lots of um, sort of answers to that question, both locally on sort of the Jewish culture, but also it's important to realize that the places that are most innovative, if I define innovative in terms of both being able to create stuff and implement them, are those that have the Goldilocks principle. They have leaders who are able to carefully figure out how do you create those ideas and how do you implement them. A lot of startup companies, people that I interviewed for this book, talked about how they struggle with this. They, they have loose mindsets. Their goal is to get bought out. They get bought out, and guess what? They can't stand these companies because they're too rule-based, because they had to scale up. And they become serial startuppers in their language. So this is a real challenge that we have which suggests that we need to figure out how to work together across these lines. How do you think about being tight and loose in terms of ambidexterity? 
I'm actually doing some work on this uh, on Navy ships right now. Now, these are contexts where they arguably should veer tighter. But what's happening in the Navy is that there's a lot of problems people leave those ships. I mean, I live near Annapolis, and some of these cadets, they go crazy on the weekend. Not all of them. I respect the Navy tremendously. But think about that principle. When you live in a very tight ship, so to speak, it could be Navy cadets, it could be your kids. When they go off to college, your kids, if they're in a very strict environment, let's think about what's going to happen there. They haven't developed that self-regulation muscle that's going to help them to adapt to a context where they're not being monitored. I'm deeply aware of that because I have now a freshman at the University of Miami. <laughs> and I try to kind of talk about this a lot. And she's aware of it because she knows that the kids that are going to have a lot of problems came from extremely tight households. So that's just to say, again, there's lots of ways to think about Goldilocks when it comes to innovation, when it comes to contexts that need to be looser or tighter and so forth. And I hope I'm not giving too much away. But there's a lot of examples of this uh, in, in the book around these kind of contrasts. And again, I want to emphasize all contexts have tight and loose elements. Even Japan, which is a really tight culture in our, in our data, has some areas, strangely enough, that are designated to be loose, <laughs> like drinking with your boss. Actually, I think it's a pretty tight norm. You've got to get drunk with your boss. But in any event, this place is in Tokyo for people who have been to Tokyo that are really super loose. Even in the United States, which generally speaking, with some pockets, is looser than many other countries, we've been a very safe country for many years. We haven't been worried about Mexico and Canada invading us for centuries like have been other contexts in the Middle East or in East Asia. But um, you know, even in our context, um, we uh, have contexts that are really pretty tight. Uh, for example, norms for privacy are really tight in the US. I, I often like to just go to my neighbor's house and ask, can you just give me some dinner? You know, I'd like to come and hang out, watch TV with you. Like That would be really inappropriate because we have very strong norms around privacy in this country. Um, even in New Zealand, which veers really quite loose, uh, there's strong norms for being egalitarian. People who try to stand out, they're very egalitarian, they're called tall poppies, and they're immediately um, shut down. So there, it's a pretty loose place, but you'll find pockets. And so it's really super interesting, in my point of view, to kind of think about why those domains evolve. I do want to say one more thing, and this is a really long-winded answer to your question. By the way, I recognize that. <laughs> Thank you. I, I appreciate it. I mean, he, <laughs> that's awesome. That's awesome. I want to mention one other thing about this, that we have a re recent paper that's under review that looks at this in pre-industrial societies. It's not just a modern invention, tight and loose. We can see the same patterns when we work with anthropologists coding these very long-winded ethnographies, which has given me a lot of gray hair, and now I have to dye it because it's really tedious work. But in any event, it's not something, we're now trying to look at this more in prehistory, and just wait for book number two because we'll have more stuff on this. And then I'll come back to Harrisburg. Question in the third row. <laughs> yeah, thank you for the talk. Um, so in, in an a analogy to population biology, when you have, um, when you have uh, a group of organisms that are all very much alike, they're great in a stable, non-threatening environment. But when you have a constantly changing and threatening environment, yeah. you need much more diversity in the population yeah, to right. be adaptive. Your data kind of argue the opposite about culture, that the rigid society is the one that is responding to the threat, and the looser one is the one that feels no threat. Yeah. I'm asking, is that an apparent paradox, or is that real? I don't think so. I think it's a really interesting question, because I think that it's also curvilinear. It's nonlinear, even, I would imagine, in population dynamics, that the groups that have that, that need to veer tight because they have a lot of threat still need to be resilient and not get super rule-based. It's the groups that are super loose also at the other extreme that can't adapt either. There's some interesting data that I, I talk about in the book on um, birds, actually, um, where like basically if a birds are too highly synchronized, that when you have a threat that comes in, then they can't deal with it because they, they, they don't have enough responsiveness to that threat. But if they're really loosely organized, they can't communicate when a threat comes in. And this principle of synchrony, too much or too little, I think is also found in the brain. Like there's a lot of evidence that some disorders are found from too much synchrony across brain areas, like epilepsy, and others like autism that might have too little synchrony. So this principle, I think synchrony and coordination is super interesting. And uh, we see it across different types of species. I talk a lot about that. My editor edited some of it out. 
you know, I had to negotiate strongly. He thinks academics have bad habits, which is true. We do like to talk a lot and <laughs> have 75 examples for the same point. But I did get to squeeze that in, and you'll see it um, later in the chapter on the Goldilocks principle. So I don't see the contradiction. I think there's probably ways that we need to kind of coordinate across disciplines. We just started a new society for the study of cultural evolution that actually brings in people that are doing stuff on animals and other species, along with cross-cultural psychologists and other people that I would strongly recommend. It's a great, interesting, crazy place. Michelle, we've got a question up on the mezzanine oh. up here. <laughs> Sorry, you're next. Yeah. Hi. Um, so I found it interesting how you um, you characterize the United States as a relatively loose country, whereas on your map there was a pretty um, pretty broad distribution of loose yeah. versus tight. Um, and I think we're all kind of seeing uh, across the world in, in, in various developing nations, we're yeah. starting to see this disparity between loose and tight. Um, in your research, has, um, have you um, come upon any strategies that are consistently used to unify yeah. um, these populations? Yeah, this is such a great question. It's a, I think it's a tripartite question also, at least. Um, one is that it's just, relatively speaking, the US, even though we could see pockets, relatively speaking, compared to places like Germany or, or Austria or Japan, tend to veer looser. In a, in a recent paper, we analyzed loosening of norms over the last 200 years in the US. It came out in Nature Human Behavior recently. And we could see that, in general, norms have loosened. You can see times when they've tightened up, when there's a lot of threat. And you see a trade-off with creativity and order in that data also. With that said, I think what's super interesting about your comment is that nowadays we see that the axis of tight loose is kind of shifting between cosmopolitan urban areas and rural manufacturing areas. And that's not just in the US. That's this tight, loose distinction is helping us to understand things that's happening with Brexit uh, in Poland, many different areas. Um, and that's where we have what you're describing as a lot of polarization. And I don't have an easy answer to that question of how do you unify. But I do have some um, discussions in the book around this that kind of gets back to the point about how do you see people as individuals. For example, uh, in one study, we know that Pakistanis and Americans have very strong negative stereotypes about each other. So for example, Pakistanis think about Americans not just loose, but it's like half naked all the time, or, or actually calling the police on their parents for being too strict. And the flip side, Americans in our interviews, if they know where Pakistan is, which is a real question, think about Pakistanis being in mosques all the time. Think about them as highly repressed. They don't conjure up images of Pakistanis playing sports or reading poetry. And what we did in one study, to this point about helping people to really get a window into each other's lives, because let's face it, we meet in the media, is we simply gave people in Pakistan or the US daily diaries of people in the other country, context for a week. So they either received diaries from an American participant or a Pakistani participant in both contexts. And we were targeting these, these negative stereotypes to see if they see, and these are unedited diaries, by the way. So these people in the US, they're waking up with their girlfriends, they're drinking more, all, they definitely de vary these diaries, we coded them. This is coming out in a journal called Behavioral, uh, Journal of um, Science and Policy, Behavioral Science and Policy. But what was remarkable is that when we can get people a window into each other's lives in a real sense, we can see remarkable changes in attitudes. And they, it's not as though they didn't see differences across the cultures, they saw the differences, but they saw that they had so much more commonality than they ever would have imagined. So we're trying, we call this a daily diary technique, and we're now trying to think about ways to use this to understand attitudes that people have towards refugees, towards immigrants in various different contexts, maybe across party lines and so forth. Um, it's a pretty scalable intervention, um, and I think it helps us to kind of see the humanity in each other and the similarity while also recognizing the differences. The other thing I'll just mention on this, the last thing I'll say, is that I think it's really important to empathize with other people's threats. I think that in Germany, for example, there's a lot of, um, a lot of infrastructure to help the working class that we don't have in the US. It's a loose culture, and I talk about this. Um, there's certificates that people can use to go from different companies in Germany that helps provide a cushion and a safety net for people, and we don't have something like that. And there's a, a strong need to get communities of local um, businesses, local community colleges, um, and companies all working together to help on this, uh, these threats that people really do feel. Um, and they're really, in large part, due to AI 
and artificial intelligence uh, and, and automation. So that's just to say that once we identify why people might be tightening, we might understand why that's the case, and we can try to develop real interventions to help provide um, more of that safety net. So now I've been rambling for a long time, so I'm going to hand it over to you. Uh, so we just, we just have time for two more questions, okay. and then we've got to wrap up. OK. <laughs> uh, Dr. Gilfand, uh, I'm wondering if your work can be used uh, to hypothesize uh, in view of probable tightening uh, environmental conditions globally, um, a, a tightening culture globally yeah. with the uh, political implications that we may already be seeing the beginning of. Yeah, this is a million trillion dollar question. <laughs> uh, and the question is really about, you know, as the earth becomes more threatened from a variety of things, from, you know, climate change to um, resources to conflict, they're all kind of interrelated. Does this portend kind of inevitable tightness? And I talk about this, uh, fighting carbon with culture is the, the section of the book that I talk about this. And you know, I might be an optimist, but I have a lot of examples of contexts that are experiencing threat collectively that come together, like some examples from Greece uh, and Turkey, from Bangladesh and India, where those kind of natural tribal types of um, kind of ideologies became useless in those contexts where people had to work together and have coordination and openness. So there's a lot of interesting examples. I will say that I'm really amazed that I work with a lot of evolutionary game theorists at Maryland where we create these models of trying to look at tightness. And what we found recently is that threat does cause people to become ethnocentric, to judge them, their groups as better than others. But when threat gets really high, you see an enormous amount of cooperation. You see much less ethnocentrism. So keep your eyes out for this kind of esoteric scientific article. But I think that it really does jive with some of our theory around this. I'm not saying that I'm glad to have extreme levels of threat. But what I'm saying is that I think it produces a different psychology once we are facing something as a collective. So, um, but you'll see some more discussions on that and how, you know, even places um, like the World Bank, um, like the Gates Foundation, who are trying to go in and help deal with threats in Africa, they, they used to, focus on personal attitudes. And, and they sort of got the memo that norms are really important in this context. You can do everything to change attitudes about something, but it's norms in a lot of these contexts that really need to be shifted. And they, they take a long time to change. And we have to really have patience when we're trying to enact change for healthier environments. But that's just to suggest that norms are extremely powerful to do that. So I hope that's a, it's optimistic uh, view of that question. So we'll see how we get more data on that. Got last question in the yeah. back. Do you find any correlation between tight and loose cultures and strong economies? Um, and if the United States, as you describe, is generally a loose culture, why do we have such a great, strong, and diverse economy compared to other countries? And does that also break down on an individual level? Obviously, you can have someone who's loose, who's an, an, an artist and, or yeah. an actor or a musician who makes a lot of money. Yeah. A businessman or somebody like that might be considered more tight and normative, yeah. uh, and they're making a lot of money, but does it break down, is there a correlation yeah. between tight and loose cultures and success yeah. in this economic a, matters? This is a great question. Um, and actually, in the data at the national level that we collected, there's almost no correlation between tight loose and, for example, GDP per capita. So you can have loose cultures that are wealthy, like the US. You can have loose cultures like Greece or Brazil that struggle. You can have um, tight cultures that are super rich, like Singapore, or you can have tight cultures that struggle. What we do find, though, and this is in the curvilinear chapter, the Goldilocks chapter, is that the extremes are really detrimental for financial performance. So that's where we have to watch out for having too much monitoring or too much looseness, because that tends to actually offset that advantage economically. Um, and so, and so does other, you know, other ways that we might in, impinge on our economy by uh, closing off and tightening up. So we have to be wary of um, that curvilinear effect. That, that's how I would describe the, the pattern, because there's no linear effect, at least at the national level. Yeah, I think my prediction would be, because we don't have data on that, is that it's still probably curvilinear. 
that you need some balance because otherwise you lose out on, you know, if we become too loose, then we lose out on order. Uh, but if we come too tight, then we lose out on creativity and innovation. That's a real problem uh, that we can see. Um, and so part of that is understanding what are the consequences kind of proximally of what it's affecting um, in terms of societal outcomes that are important to us. I think the US, um, like many countries, is struggling with these questions uh, of, of how loose and how tight. But the more we understand the, the dimension, I think it's at least we can have conversations around it. Can we give one more round of applause for Dr. Belfan? <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. You have been listening to the Midtown Scholar Bookstore Author Reading Podcast. Please make sure to hit the subscribe button to keep up to date on all our newest author talks. After every event, there are limited quantities of signed copies of the featured books. Don't forget to grab your copy today. If you would like more information on Midtown Scholar Bookstore, please visit midtownscholar.com. The Midtown Scholar Bookstore Author Reading Podcast is a free podcast and does not own the rights to any of the readings.